We're well into the 21st century, yet human trafficking and slavery remain a problem in global supply chains. What can be done to put a stop to them? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Efforts to eliminate human trafficking and slavery are being waged on multiple fronts. Among those with the highest profile is Humanity United, part of a multifaceted philanthropic effort launched by eBay founder Pierre Omidyar. Recently, Humanity United joined with the Walmart Foundation and others to form the Working Capital Fund, a $25 million venture fund to invest in tools for creating more transparent and ethical supply chains. Today, I'm going to talk about that initiative, as well as other issues related to slavery and trafficking, with Ed Markham, Managing Director of Humanity United. He'll tell us how the partners plan to involve leading brands, foundations, and investors in an all-out effort to reduce worker vulnerability and ensure transparency in working conditions. Maybe we can put an end to this scourge once and for all. So here is my conversation with Ed Markham. Ed Markham, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Tell me about Humanity United. When was it formed and for what purpose? So Humanity United, it's a private foundation started by eBay founder Piero Midiar and his wife, Pam. We were started 10 years ago, and the Omidyar family has started multiple different philanthropic entities, all which fall under a broader umbrella structure called the Omidyar Group. Each particular entity has its own area of focus, Humanity United has focused on human rights-related issues since inception, and from the beginning, we've focused in particular had a, a body of work or a portfolio that has targeted issues of forced labor, bonded labor, forms of modern slavery, and, and then severe labor exploitation. And I work on a particular portfolio that targets addressing issues of labor exploitation in the supply chains of multinational corporations. So would you classify Humanity United as an NGO? We are a private foundation, not an NGO, in that we don't have to fundraise. We have our resources that come from the, the Omidyar family. And so the purpose is, it sounds like you're talking about it's pretty much based on labor-oriented human rights issues. You don't expand your purpose to include, like, sustainability or environmental stuff or anything like that. So as I, I mentioned earlier, the Omidyar family has taken an approach to philanthropy whereby they have relatively autonomous and independent entities that each have a particular area of focus. They do have entities that focus on poverty reduction, poverty alleviation, health interventions, uh, interventions that focus on broken democratic processes here in the United States, for example. But our particular focus is human rights, and, and so we don't veer from that. In 10 years of existence, what would you say are some of your major accomplishments? We've done a lot of work 
first on, on conflict prevention and peace building. So we're very active. Initially, a decade ago, as you may recall, the Save Darfur advocacy movement was strong, and we were a vibrant participant in that body of work and have continued to do quite a bit of work in conflict prevention, primarily in sub-Saharan Africa on the human trafficking or modern slavery side of the portfolio. We've done a number of things. We established one of the, the leading coalitions of NGO actors who work on this particular issue. So it's called the Alliance to End Slavery and Trafficking, or ATTEST. We've contributed to the creation of a philanthropic vehicle called the Freedom Fund, which is a $100 million vehicle that targets specific interventions in hotspots around the world where we know the prevalence of trafficking and slavery is the highest, including specific areas in India, Thailand, Brazil, etc. So I think those would be some of the many distinguished projects that we've been involved in over the last decade. So tell me more about what are the biggest challenges you're facing today? First of all, in terms of region, you mentioned India. Where are the big, uh, big hotspots in terms of this issue? One of the big challenges is that the issue is highly complex. It's a wicked problem with a number of different drivers, essentially. It can be everything from poverty, gender, caste, migrant status, etc. And it plays across a number of geographies and it manifests itself, in, particularly in my work, in a number of different industries. There are certainly areas where prevalence is highest, where you have, I think, in particular, greater poverty, a variety of variables that can lead to more extreme vulnerability for workers and or for individuals if, if you're not talking about exclusively looking at, at labor trafficking, but sex trafficking as well. Many of those are in South Asia in particular. I think if you look at aggregate numbers, if you look at Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, Nepal, depending on the estimates, anywhere from 40 to 50 percent of the world's modern slaves reside in those areas of the world. But as I said, it's not exclusive to those geographies whatsoever. So in, in the work that I do that is focused more on where and how forced labor touches the supply chain of multinational corporations, we see that often it can cut across so seafood and particularly shrimp and coming from Thailand is an area where there's been really well documented cases of severe labor exploitation on ships where often Burmese migrants find themselves basically forced to work at sea, sometimes for several years on end without ever coming back to port for no pay. You see in the Malaysian electronics industry and the Taiwanese electronics in industry situations, often bonded labor occurs through the recruitment process itself. So a migrant laborer may pay to acquire a job in, in their home country. They can then end up in a destination country where their passport's been confiscated. They have minimal rights. They are forced to work into a job in a country where they don't speak the language, they don't really know if there is a way out, essentially, and often there are predatory interest rates piled on top of that debt. And so collectively, it puts them in a situation where they're essentially without pay for, for two years, and then they return back to their home country still in debt. Do you fight child labor as well? We do. I think we find that many of the vulnerabilities that drive forced labor are the same that drive child labor. And so in certain settings, again, if you're looking at the work of multinational corporations and where they have exposure. If you look at cocoa coming from West Africa, again, pretty well-documented cases of high prevalence of child labor within that particular industry. It can be poverty. It can be sort of piecemeal quotas that are required. It can be weak rule of law. It can be economic asymmetries between certain neighboring country where migrants are so desperate that they're willing to come in and bring their family members and in some cases bring and or force their children to work on their behalf that drive this kind of exploitation. The kinds of interventions we focus on ultimately are targeted on creating better visibility, better enforcement of policy, and both of those things generally will address both forced labor and child labor. 
I want to talk about how you've worked with private business, the degree to which uh, business has stepped up to help eliminate these practices around the world. Uh, you recently announced an initiative with Walmart Foundation. What was that all about? We have for seven years now worked on trying to address forced labor and supply chains of multinational corporations. And as part of our philanthropic portfolio, much of what we've done is focused on two things. It's focused on motivating business to do more and to take the issue seriously, and then also providing them the means to be able to do a better job and to have more responsible practice in terms of identifying and addressing issues of forced labor in their operations. A outgrowth of that work or an evolution of that work was the launch of the Working Capital Fund, which we recently announced, which is a $25 million early stage venture fund that will hopefully invest in a tools or a suite of tools that will allow business to do a better job of identifying and addressing mitigating risks of forced labor in their operation. The basic investment thesis and or opportunity that we feel like we've identified is that increasingly there are a number of trends that are pushing business to pay more attention to issues of forced labor. So starting actually six years ago here in California, we had something called the California Transparency and Supply Chain Act, which forced any company with over $100 million worth of revenue that was a manufacturer, retailer, and broadly defined did work in California to disclose what steps they took to address trafficking in their operations. Then you've seen similar legislation pass around the globe, the most prominent being the UK Modern Slavery Act, which has a threshold of 36 million pounds and therefore reaches as many as 13,000 companies. Australia's passed disclosure legislation. France has recently passed disclosure legislation. So regardless of the jurisdiction you're operating in, increasingly you are required to address forced labor through some sort of public disclosure often with sort of C-suite sign-off on those disclosure statements on an annual basis. We've seen that there's sort of an increasing regulatory pressure on companies to do more. We've also seen that there's been terrific investigative journalism and, and NGO reporting that has taken what was once, I think, seen as sort of an anecdotal accusation of forced labor being a risk in certain industries and taken it to the point where there's sort of an irrefutable evidence base that if you're sourcing seafood from Thailand, if you are sourcing palm oil from Indonesia or Malaysia, electronics from Malaysia, etc., you may not be guilty of anything, but you certainly have risk. And so you need to be doing a thorough job of mitigating that risk. So all of that has led to businesses prioritizing issues of labor exploitation in their supply chain more prominently. And we believe that there are a number of well-intentioned companies that want to do more and um, when they look at the toolkit available to them, it's relatively limited. So you've got voluntary supplier codes of conduct, which are by definition voluntary, very difficult to enforce all the way down your supply chain. You've got multi-stakeholder dialogues that will bring government, business, NGOs around the table to try to resolve problems. And they're important, but they can be very slow moving. They can often devolve down to the lowest common denominator. And then you've got the go-to tool of choice, which is the social audit, it also value, but has limitations. So it's a snapshot in time every year or two years. It's a lagging indicator. If you ever do find out that there's anything wrong with a particular work setting, consequently, we felt like there was an investment opportunity to you know, identify new innovations essentially in that space and create a better suite of tools that would allow business to do a better job. And in doing that, we've reached out to a variety of for-profit corporations, including Walmart, including Disney, including the CNA clothing company out of Europe, among others, to create a pooled investment fund that will 
basically look for innovative technologies and supply chain solutions that can be applied to addressing labor rights risks in your operations. I'd like to know more about what form those tools might take, because as a supply chain specialist, you know all too well about the complexity of global supply chains, about the multiple yeah. tiers of any major supply chain, about sub, 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 subcontractors. Yeah. So many companies have these codes of conduct. They claim that their that their supply chain is free of human slavery, and then you find out like three or four levels down, something's going Going on. So how can companies get that type of visibility in such complex supply chains? What are some of these tools you're talking about? The genesis of the fund really began when we started to see the clustering of a number of innovations around themes or potential product categories that we thought, again, could constitute a suite of tools that would allow business to do a better job. I'll be perfectly clear, they're no silver bullet. And as you mentioned, supply chains are globally distributed, highly complex, and that leads to a lot of opacity. And I think our ultimately, our, our conclusion is that opacity creates an environment that enables exploitation to occur. One of our targets is to try to create better visibility, better transparency, as many tiers down as possible within the supply chain as a kind of a prerequisite for addressing labor rights. There are four areas in particular that we at least initially have focused on. The first is something that we call worker voice or sort of worker engagement tools. You're starting to see a number of mobile platforms that allow for anonymous real-time feedback from workers in any given working context, whether it's in a factory and or all the way down at the bottom of the supply chain at the commodity level or the smallholder level. Now that there's ubiquitous penetration of cell phones in, uh, around the world, you have enough critical mass to actually get that feedback on a regular basis. And as someone further up the supply chain, you can then know, is there a health and safety risk on a factory floor? Have workers not been paid for three weeks straight? Are there any other kinds of, of warning signs that you need to be paying attention to? And then you can take action immediately. And so you've started to see a number of entrants, primarily for-profit companies, coming into that space, trying to get brands and or suppliers to adopt these types of technologies. And we think some of them are attractive business models and, and are investable. We also think that over time, the larger social auditing firms, if they're not embedding real-time feedback from workers into their approach, are going to be caught flat-footed. So we see a real opportunity to either sell and or be acquired by some of these larger audit firms in the long run. I mentioned earlier some of the challenges with unethical recruitment, which is really a systemic risk across multiple industries and multiple geographies. So, again, too often a vulnerable worker will pay to acquire a job. They'll end up in a destination country. The terms of the contract that they thought that they were signing up for have been changed. Their passport's confiscated so they can't leave. They don't speak the local language. They're basically stuck working for several years on a contract which they can't get out of. We've started to see the evolution or development of ethical recruitment models that are vertically integrated where a recruiter will have chain of custody from the village level all the way through in some cases to managing on the factory floor in the destination country, which are somewhat more expensive, but they also can certainly mitigate your risk that workers in your supply chain are bonded and are therefore not being paid. It can also ideally lead to productivity increases and less worker turnover, etc. So we believe there's a business proposition there to be tested. So we'll be looking at interventions in that space. We think a number of the breakthroughs in big data analytics, machine learning, also provide the opportunity for better risk assessment tools available to corporations and particularly um, people in procurement positions within corporations. So too often, someone in a procurement position can be overwhelmed and therefore paralyzed because there are tens of thousands, in some cases, even hundreds of thousands of subcontractors in their supply chain. But there's some interesting applications of big data where you can begin to get correlations and or data points that may tell you that a specific supplier 
because they had a problem with the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act or whatever it may be, might deserve for you to do additional deeper diligence. And so we see some, some promising new tools emerging in that space, which we think can help people in procurement positions prioritize the limited resources that they do have available to the areas where the highest risk exists. And then the last area that we've seen some interesting innovations emerge is in the traceability space. Companies already spend tens of millions of dollars on traceability tools, but too often the fidelity of those are questionable and the cost can be prohibitively expensive to scale. And so we started to see the emergence of a number of innovations with blockchain traceability platforms and innovations as well in terms of DNA tracing that is driving the cost down again and improving the quality fidelity of the chain of custody and the provenance of given goods. It's some nice opportunities for investing in some of those entities with the hope then again of creating better visibility into the provenance and origin of goods. And, and once you know where things come from, then you can really assess whether they were produced ethically and whether labor conditions are above board there. But when you don't have any visibility into that, then, as I said, that opacity leads for the space where bad practice can flourish. To the extent that you're depending on surreptitious reporting by employees themselves, that can be a very dangerous thing for them to do. Might you require at some point some actual undercover presence of auditing people who are you know, passing as workers but can monitor situations in, in that manner? There are definitely a variety of different approaches. And as I mentioned, we have a philanthropic portfolio and then a venture fund, the Working Capital Fund, which we just launched in partnership with business. With Working Capital, we are going to be making for-profit investments. And so there isn't really a revenue model for the type of intervention that you just mentioned. Um, it doesn't mean it wouldn't be effective Having said that, your your underlying point about the importance of worker safety is front and center in everything that we do. And so when we look at the kinds of tools that we would invest in in the worker voice space, we want to make sure that there is anonymity of workers and that there are checks and balances in the system that ensure that they can voice a grievance and that there will be no reprisals for that. As you point out, a number of these regulations that have appeared in recent years are basically reporting requirements. They don't necessarily have teeth to them. Some of them do, but others don't. That being the case, it's really a question of brand reputation, is it not? And that assumes that consumers care. My question to you is, do consumers care to the extent that brand reputation would truly be harmed and that they would stop turning a blind eye toward the need to buy cheap clothing and not want to know who made that? Does the buyer care about this issue? Yeah, that's a great question. The holy grail is for consumers to be more active and to vote with their wallet more consistently. There are a number of public opinion polls and surveys that I've seen that suggest that consumers want to do the right thing and they, they want to purchase ethically. Often that hasn't actually translated to action and, and their behavior is somewhat divergent from the, the data you would get from through polling. There are, is increasingly evidence that millennials care a lot more about the role of ethical practices in business and similarly the importance of, of ethical production in their purchasing decisions. And so we may see an evolution in that regard. We do see some examples where particularly premium products that can certify or validate that they have been produced ethically or environmentally sustainably in certain contexts do receive premium pricing in the marketplace, but it hasn't translated necessarily into mass market. And yet I think there really is significant brand risk and reputational risk. We have done a lot of work in the context of Thailand and the seafood sector in Thailand. And when The Guardian in particular broke a story that detailed the severe levels of exploitation in the seafood sector and implicated 
Walmart, Costco, Morrison's, a number of really large retailers, it was surprising how quickly they took action. And that's been a concerted effort that continues to, to this day where they've created an industry task force that brings together the government of Thailand and business to try to do a better job. So there's clearly a sense that certain industry does feel the pressure and feels the the brand risk of being implicated, particularly when the the labor exploitation is the most severe forms of labor exploitation and that would cross that threshold into being considered modern slavery. No one wants to have their products be affiliated with slave labor. Well, Ed Markham, I want to thank you so much for spending time with us to tell us about the work of Humanity United and giving us an idea that maybe there is some hope, some progress that has been made, although there's much work left to be done. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. That was my conversation with Ed Markham of Humanity United, talking about the fight to wipe out human trafficking and slavery in supply chains. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.